Good morning and happy Black History Month. Today we are discussing two miracles Jesus performs in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And before we turn to these stories, there are two ideas that need to be clarified. First, I am aware that when I say the word miracle, many of you will be tempted to check out of the conversation. After all, many Christian institutions wield the miracles of Jesus as a measuring stick to determine who is in and who is out of the Jesus Club. My friends, this spiritual gatekeeping dumbs down the miracles of Jesus. To fully appreciate the depths of each miracle in Scripture, we must stop asking, did this miracle literally and historically occur? And instead, we must start asking, how is this miracle asking me to enter into becoming a more loving person? I point all of this out because the two miracles in today's passage are unlike anything I have personally witnessed in my lifetime. And while I do not know if they historically or literally occurred, what I do know is that both of these miracles challenge me to enter into life and to more fully embrace the mystery of this human existence. The second idea that needs to be stated is that the Christian church has a terrible history of anti-Semitism. For too long, stories of Jesus, like this one, are misconstrued as condemnations of the Jewish people, the Jewish religion, and the Jewish tradition. This must stop. Any interpretation of a Jesus story which ends with the Christians being right and the Jews being wrong is a shallow and misinformed interpretation. Personally, I have learned so much about the divine from rabbis, from practicing Jews, from barely practicing Jews, from the Hebrew scriptures, from the city of Jerusalem, that I consider all of them to be my teachers. And of course, the person I consider to be my greatest teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, is 100% Jewish. And Jesus never set out to create a new religion. He only sought to advance the work of God through the religion and culture of Judaism, much like the other contemporary rabbis of his day. In today's story, Jesus critiques the Jewish religion as a lifelong participant and member of the Jewish religion. These self-examinations are a healthy practice and necessary for every religious person in every religion of the world to ensure that our beautiful religious traditions do not become idolatrous. Our intention this morning is not to discover how another's tradition is wrong and how our tradition is right. Rather, our intention this morning is to see how our own Christian tradition, which we love and practice, has limited our own understanding of God. And then talk about how we transcend those limitations so that we might enter into greater love. With both of these ideas now stated, I invite you to journey back with me 2,000 years ago to first century Judea. Last week, we told a story about Jesus liberating a man in the country of the Gerasenes. Unsurprisingly, after Jesus frees this man, his oppressors, the Gerasenes, begged Jesus to leave their country. Complying with their request, Jesus and his disciples clamber back into their boat and sail some 10 miles across the Sea of Galilee to Jesus' hometown of Capernaum. Due to his reputation as a healer, a large crowd rushes to meet Jesus when he arrives on the shore. In the frenzy, a religious leader from a local synagogue named Jairus bows down in anguish at the feet of Jesus. Jesus, he cries, my little daughter is desperately sick. Come and lay your hands on her to make her better and save her life. 
When we read the Bible today, it can be easy for us to read Jairus' words and move on quickly to the next sentence. But the point of the Bible is not to get through it. The point of the Bible is to help us become more loving people. And one of the primary ways in which human beings love is by the practice of empathy. While we understand his career choice, uh, it is secondary to Jairus' primary identity in this story, which is Jairus is a father. And within a few lines, it becomes evident that he loves his daughter with his whole heart. He is a loving father, and he, along with his wife, gave their daughter a name. And while the Gospel of Mark does not share her name with us, our tradition has given his daughter a name, Talitha, which is how we will refer to her for the remainder of this teaching. Now, Jairus' little Talitha, who is just 12 years old, is sick, and she is running out of options. And Jairus senses that she is slipping through his fingers. Without any certainty that she will become better, Jairus is worried. Jairus is agitated. Jairus is uncertain and angry, and he's anxious all at once. In his desperation, he hears a faith healer about a faith healer in Capernaum and decides to go and see if this man can possibly help him, which is why I imagine some relief in Jairus' bones when Jesus agrees to go to his house and see if he can heal his daughter Talitha. As Jesus and Jairus begin to move toward his home, the crowd moves with them. The crowd is so thick and manic that Jesus and Jairus stagger and stumble to take even the smallest of steps. As the squeeze narrows our perspective, Mark, who is writing this book and is therefore the director of this film, cuts away to a woman on the periphery of the crowd. While she is unnamed in the scriptures, the church later assigned her the name Veronica, which is the name we will use for her for the remainder of this teaching. From the decentralized perspective of Veronica, Mark begins to tell us her backstory. Veronica suffers from severe hemorrhages. This uncontrolled and sustained bleeding impacts every facet of Veronica's life. To understand the scope of this impact, I spoke with Dr. Ashley Henderson, a practicing obstetrician gynecologist and former Paradox Church, church participant, about the story of Veronica and her ailment. After discussing the text with her, Ashley told me, I meet this woman every day in my clinic in, at various ages and stages. And while the text is not specific enough for Ashley to offer a modern diagnosis, she described Veronica's condition as, quote, abnormal uterine bleeding with prolonged and heavy menstrual bleeding. If untreated, this bleeding can go on for months or even years leading to a low blood count in the body of the one who copes with this. This low blood count causes shortness of breath, a racing heart, constant fatigue, and abysmally low energy that makes even the simplest task one of great effort. This is Veronica's daily reality, one of an enduring spirit limited by her bleeding and worn-out body. And while just a few weeks of this anemic condition would be a major inconvenience for any of us, Mark tells us that Veronica has suffered from this blood, lo blood loss for 12 years. To put this time period in perspective, my first child is 10 years old. And because I am 40 years old, that means that I allegedly once lived a life in which I was not a parent. <laughs> I must confess, I can barely remember my life before kids. Apparently, I used to just 
walk around <laughs> wherever I wanted to go without a care in the world. And in this meandering walk, I supposedly was so free that I never worried about needing to give anyone else a snack. <laughs> the memory of my life before kids are distant and hazy. This cerebral fog demonstrates how long a decade truly is in a human being's memory. And Veronica has lived with this condition for two years longer than a, than a decade. Consider for a moment all of the memories that Veronica has of the past 12 years and how each of these memories are influenced by this condition. If Veronica spoke at Paradox today, at this point in the story, I imagine that she would say to us, I can barely remember my life without this disease. In her desperation to become well, Veronica spent every last coin in her bank account seeking treatment for this illness. She went to the most reputable doctors and the most experimental doctors. She carefully followed every step of long-term treatment plans prescribed to her, and she clenched her fists tightly as she endured painful treatments. Despite her willingness, her finances, and her determination, nothing cured her. In fact, Mark tells us, she was getting worse. But even all of these descriptions from a gospel writer and a modern doctor still do not capture the entirety of how these hemorrhages shaped Veronica's life. Because Mark assumes that his readers understand the implications of what it means for a woman to suffer from hemorrhages and also to be Jewish. In the Hebrew Bible, there are a handful of books whose primary purpose is religious rules. One of these books is the book of Leviticus. This book takes place approximately 1,300 years before the story of Jesus, Jairus, and Veronica, and unfurls in the wilderness around the newly constructed tabernacle. This tent in the story of Leviticus is quite literally the house of God. Now, the thesis of this book, Leviticus, is found in chapter 19, where we read, Yahweh told Moses to tell the entire Israelite community these things. Be holy, for I, Yahweh, am holy. At its best, Leviticus is a book filled with rules which are designed to help the Israelite nation rise above the common self-serving interests of nations and states and become something greater. In the same chapter as the thesis of statement, God declares that a holy nation that God is calling Israel to be is one which welcomes immigrants and strangers with open arms. A holy nation is one that respects and cares for the elderly. A holy nation does not cheat, but is honest with one another. And a holy nation does not have any hatred in its heart. However, Leviticus is also a book filled with rules, which are designed to determine a human being's worthiness in the presence of God. In the same chapter as this thesis statement, God also declares that there are rules about how to cut your hair correctly, and rules condemning anyone with a tattoo, and rules saying it's okay to eat meat within two days, but not three days of the animal's death. The 19th chapter of Leviticus is the best chapter of Leviticus because it's a microcosm for the entire book of Leviticus. Remarkably progressive ideals sitting shoulder to shoulder next to irrationally harsh rules. Four chapters before this one, is one such harsh rule, and it applies directly to our story about Jesus and Veronica. We read, when a woman among you has her menstrual cycle, she is to remain apart for seven days, 
and anyone who touches her will be ceremonially unclean until evening. Anything that she lies upon during her period will be ceremonially unclean, and anything she sits upon will be ceremonially unclean. Those who sit on anything she sits upon must wash their clothes and bathe with water and will be unclean until evening. Whether it is the bed or anything she sits on, if others touch it, they will be unclean until evening. If a man lies with her and her menstrual blood touches him, he will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, and any bed that he lies on will be unclean. If a woman has a flow of blood for many days when it is not time for her period, or when it continues to flow longer than the time of her period, she will be ceremonially unclean for as long as the flow occurs, just as during her period. Mark assumes that we know these religious rules exist when he tells us Veronica's story. This constant and uncontrolled bleeding caused Veronica to be ceremonially unclean for 12 whole years. To be ceremonially unclean meant Veronica could not live wherever she wanted, but instead was relegated to the fringes of the town. Veronica also lived with the belief and understanding that everything she touched, from furniture to the people she hugged, also became unclean and needed to be designated as such. Religiously, she was barred from participating in all festivals, feasts, and sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem, and she could only listen as family members recounted how beautiful, how moving, and how divine these social gatherings had been. In other words, these hemorrhages triggered a social isolation from religious laws who were recorded exclusively by men. And these men simply did not understand that bleeding could go on for 12 years at a time, which caused a great deal of trouble for Veronica a considerable amount of time after these laws were recorded. Veronica, at this point then, is understandably desperate. And as the crowd follows Jesus and sidles toward the house of Jairus, on the edge of the masses, Veronica thinks to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his cloak, I will be well again. And with her racing heart and her weakened lungs and her tired body, Veronica begins to push with all of her compromised might toward Jesus through the swirling sea of selfish bodies. Around, underneath, over, and around again, Veronica finally gets within an arm's reach of Jesus she bends down and lunges with her hand, and in her strain, three of her fingers just graze the cloak of Jesus. Suddenly, her heart calms. Her lungs fill. Her cramps subside, and her body is made new. Veronica is in a state of disbelief. She has not felt this good since, well, has she ever felt this good? Tears begin to well up in the corners of her eyes as she heaves with a kind of unparalleled gratitude and relief. But this moment is interrupted by a deafening silence. Why, she wonders, is the crowd not moving anymore? And then it dawns on her. Jesus stopped and is now asking everyone a question. Who touched my clothes? The stillness is awkward. No one says a word. No one coughs. No one laughs. No one moves. It was me, Veronica confesses. I touched your clothes. She is crying now, 
She tries in vain to wipe away her tears as she looks down toward the ground. She says, I believe that if I could just touch your clothes, then I could finally be healed from a disease that I have suffered from for 12 years now. There is a long pause before Jesus then quietly says, and what happened after you touched my clothes? Veronica thinks about this for a moment and says, oh, everything I hoped for was given to me. And Jesus smiles and says, my daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be free of your affliction. This is the first miracle. But before we can celebrate the wonder of this healing and Veronica's brand new life, two messengers arrive from the direction of the house of Jairus. They bow low before Jairus and say, your daughter is dead. Why put the teacher to any further trouble? Before Jairus can react, Jesus interjects and says, do not be afraid, Jairus, just believe. Jesus turns to the crowd and pol politely asks them to stop following him. He motions for Jairus and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, to follow him to Jairus' house. When they arrive, they encounter a gathering of grievers, wailing and weeping without restraint. Jesus, in a bizarre and seemingly insensitive move, asks, why all this commotion and crying? The child is not dead, but asleep. This triggers some murmurs from the grievers, and I must say, I'm on the grievers' side on this one. Jesus, though, continues on. He asks Jairus, Jairus' wife, and his three disciples to accompany him into the room where Talitha lays. They enter the room, and a tangible feeling of emptiness washes over them. There is little Talitha, and Jairus begins to weep again. Unfazed, Jesus strides forward, bends down, and gently takes Talitha's hand. This may seem like an innocuous gesture to you, but to a Jewish audience 2,000 years ago, holding the hands of a corpse is a statement. Because next to the book of Leviticus is the book of Numbers. And just like Leviticus, this book is set in the wilderness. There are more stories in this book of the Bible than Leviticus, but Numbers brims with religious rules. One of these rules is found in chapter 19 when God is speaking to Moses and his brother Aaron. We read, those who touch the body of a dead person will be ceremonially unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves with the water on the third day and on the seventh day before becoming ceremonially clean. Which means that some 1,300 years later, Jesus, holding Talitha's hand, is willingly and intentionally entering into a state of religious uncleanliness. In his impurity, he says, little girl, get up. Immediately, the color returns to Talitha's skin. Her eyes become sharp and focused. She wakes up and she begins to walk. Jairus, Jairus' wife, Peter, James, and John are overwhelmed with amazement. And in this moment of indescribable wonder, Jesus says, give Talitha something to eat. And with those words, the scene fades to black and the credits begin to roll. <laughs> As we consider these two miracles, we must ask the question, how are these miracles asking me to be a more loving person? To answer this question, we need to mention something that goes far beyond the Gospel of Mark. 
You see, in the Bible, there are four Gospels or four biographies detailing the life and story of Jesus Christ. These Gospels are much closer to paintings than they are to spreadsheets, which means they are dif there are differences and disagreements in the timelines and stories about Jesus, but each of them are a personal testimony inspired by the life of Jesus. Jairus' story and Veronica's story are recorded in three out of the four Gospels. Now, what is really fascinating to me is that in all three of these biographies, these two stories of Jairus and Veronica are always told with the same literary structure, a narrative sandwich where Jairus asks Jesus to heal Talitha, and on the way to his house, Veronica appears and touches Jesus' cloak, and then Jesus continues on to Jairus' house to raise Talitha from the dead. This consistent structure teaches us that Veronica's story and Jairus' story are inextricably linked to one another. And if we tell one story without the other, we are missing the larger implications of what these miracles of Jesus are teaching us according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So what do these two miracles have in common, and how are they different, and how do they change when we read them together rather than reading them apart? The most obvious similarity to me is Jairus and Veronica both go looking for Jesus. Neither story begins by Jesus turning to his disciples and saying, hey guys, my spidey sense is tingling. We must go to Capernaum so that I can perform two miracles. No. Jairus sees Talitha suffering. Her pain breaks his heart. And rather than giving up and telling her, well, you're going to die soon, he sets out on a whim hoping something can be done to improve Talitha's life. Veronica is lonely and in pain. She is exhausted from 12 years of dealing with severe blood loss. And rather than giving up and telling herself, well, I guess this disease will dictate my life forever, she sets out on a whim, hoping something can be done to improve her life. Even though every, even though every effort of hers for 12 years has resulted in failure, Veronica keeps going until she finally touches the cloak of Jesus and she is healed. And after the healing, what does Jesus ask her or tell her? Your faith has made you well. My friends, both of these miracles are about faith. There is another book in the Bible called Romans, and it's about the concept of faith. The Apostle Paul wrote this book a few decades after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the thesis of the book of Romans, according to one of the greatest theologians ever, Karl Barth, resides in its 17th verse when Paul writes, For in that gospel, God's justice is revealed, a justice which arises from faith and has faith as its result. As it is written, by being faithful, those who are upright will find life. In other words, Paul teaches us, if you trust there is something good in this existence and then chase after that good with all you have, you will discover a life that is worth living. Or to put it in more modern terms, you will find what you are looking for. This thesis is worth no noting because Paul, who wrote Romans, traveled with Mark to strange new lands to spread the good news of the gospel. And when you read Mark's gospel today, one of the central themes of his gospel is the thesis statement of Romans. When we trust there is something good nearby and chase after it with all we have, then we will find life. 
And Mark believes Veronica embodies this central tenet of the gospel. Because what is Veronica's faith here really? Is her faith that she ignored doctors and said, God's got me, and then sat on her keister in her home as she waited for God to heal her from heaven? Absolutely not. Veronica is a woman who suffered. She tried everything and failed. She was kicked to the curb by her religion. She cried in her weariness as she wondered if she should keep trying. But after 12 long years of enduring all of this blood loss and fatigue and short breath and loneliness, Veronica still had the faith to say, I still think things can be better. And then in hope, demanded her weak body to push its way through a crowd to insist that she was worthy to touch the cloak of the Son of God. My friends, this is faith. And this is why Matthew, Mark, and Luke require Veronica's story to be told with Jairus' story. Because Jairus is a man who suffered. He begged for God to heal his daughter, and his prayers went unanswered. He sat helplessly next to Talitha as her life slowly drifted away from her. He cried and he cried and he cried as he thought, I would do anything to trade places with her if it meant that I could take this suffering away from her. But after enduring all of this painful observation and uncertainty and anxiety and tears, Jairus still had the faith to say, and then in hope sought out a faith healer and did not even allow the worst news imaginable to deter him on his journey. My friends, this is faith. And Jairus and Veronica are exemplary in the way they endure terrible suffering, and yet they still have the audacity to trust that this life is good. But their faith is only half the story. Because as we discussed in the events this morning, we shared how the socio-religious factors influenced the nuances of both of these miracles. What I find interesting about both of these miracles is that the prevailing wisdom of Jesus' day considered the spiritually unclean to be unworthy to stand in the presence of God. And while Jesus is certainly not the first Jewish rabbi to question the validity of these purity laws in Leviticus and Numbers, there is an intentional movement in his actions to meet people in their state of spiritual uncleanliness and embrace them as they are before he does any kind of miracle for them. After all, Veronica touches Jesus first, rendering Jesus unclean, and then she is healed. Jesus holds the hand of Talitha while she is dead, rendering Jesus unclean, and then she is resurrected. From a Christian perspective, which believes Jesus Christ to be the embodiment of God, this is scandalous. These miracles teach us that God is found in the very place we have been told that God is never going to be. If this sounds like a paradox, welcome. We are glad you are here. If you feel like a failure, then God meets you in your failure. If you feel like you are a miserable person to be around, then God meets you in all of your miserable glory. If you feel like you cannot believe any of the miracles of the Bible then God meets you in your unbelief. Consider the implications of this gospel as we strive to be people of great faith. If you trust there is something good about being alive and you put effort into searching for that which is good, then the promise of the Christian tradition is that you will discover life and love and beauty and restoration and forgiveness in the most unexpected places. This is the testimony of the miracles of Veronica and Jairus and the gospel of Mark. And this is why the United States of America must always remember 
that the civil rights movement was, was and continues to be a movement of monumental faith. After the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 and the liberation of the last slaves on Juneteenth in 1865, racism did not end, but instead was merely transformed. 35 years later, Louisiana passed the Separate Car Act, which required railroad companies to provide separate but equal accommodations for rail car passengers based on race. This was challenged by a man named Homer Plessy, a man of mixed race who sat down in a whites-only car and was promptly arrested. The ensuing lawsuits led all the way to the Supreme Court, who ruled in favor of the railroads and enshrined the purposely deceptive separate but equal into American law. This led to a plethora of signs that read, for whites only, and racists were allowed to put their hatred on full display for all to see, as separate but equal did not mean separate but equal. I once heard the great Richard Rohr describe sin as disconnection. Few things disconnected people from one another in our nation's history than segregation. Segregation started to crumble in 1954 with the landmark case Brown versus Board of Education, which declared that segregated schools are unconstitutional. This is considered the unofficial beginning of the civil rights movement. And this ruling galvanized the people to expose the sin of segregation at every opportunity in the country. African Americans began drinking from four whites-only drinking fountains in masses. They boycotted buses that reserved the best seats for whites only and organized carpools and walked to work until the buses changed. They sat in designated white dining spaces and discouraged racist business owners. All of these actions were done with the trust that it was good to be alive and that trust led them to a very unexpected place, the very heart of racism. Their actions, as brave as they were, exposed the racist tendencies of the nation and demanded that the country see and trust what they, that it was good that they were in this country together and a nation which is disconnected is ultimately a sinful nation. I do not want to gloss over the violence white Americans inflicted upon African Americans during this era. This violence was truly evil. But despite all of the suffering they endured, the courageous activists of the civil rights movement kept going because they trusted that life could be better, and all of us today are the beneficiaries of their unwavering faith. Which is why I believe we need to celebrate the fruits of their faith more often. If you go to Savannah, Georgia today, a town which just 60 years ago had diners and restaurants all around town with designated sections saying, for whites only, you will come across a restaurant called The Gray. And this restaurant is due to the hard work and innovation of Chef Mashama Bailey. At The Gray, you'll find delectable and innovative dishes of okra and sweetbreads and ch uh, chicken country and lamb heart. And these dishes are extraordinary and have received the highest awards of recognition. In 2017, Eater Magazine named, it, named The Gray as the restaurant of the year. In 2018, Time Magazine recognized The Gray as one of the 100 best places in the entire world. And in 2022, Mashama Bailey reached the summit of the culinary world when she won the prestigious James Beard Award for Outstanding Chef. Just 60 years earlier, her existence, her excellence, and her accolades seemed unthinkable in the United States of America. 
And yet, here we are today, living in this reality, because of so many African-Americans shared faith that came before her, came before all of us, and their faith that this life could be better for everyone if we live together in a connected way. Chef Mashama is the tangible reality of her ancestors' courageous faith. Her ancestors, who endured suffering like Jairus, Talitha, and Veronica, continued to trust that life could be better and gave everything they had to that trust and found a life filled with beauty, love, and wonder. My friends, may we become people of great faith and trust that this life is good. And may that trust lead us to discover life. Amen.